Welcome to episode 11 of the Welding Codex. This is a podcast for those who want to learn more about the technical side of welding. We're going to talk philosophy of welding, welding codes, welding defects, metallurgy, and subjects that would bore the general population to tears. In this episode of the Welding Codex, welding engineers and CWIs Peter Kinney and Gary Pace continue the conversation about AWS D1.1 Structural Welding Code Steel. This episode covers Clause 5. We've already covered a big chunk of Clause 5. This will cover a chunk of Clause 5, and then we've probably got one or two more episodes to cover the rest of Clause 5. So this one's going to cover fabrication, um, stress relief, heat treatment, backing, minimum fillet weld sizes, preparation of base metal, tack welds and construction aids, and a couple other um, random items thrown in there. Anyways, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you listening. Note, Pete and Gary bounce back and forth between Code Editions 2015 and 2020 during the course of this episode. So before we get started, I'm going to apologize if the podcast gets a little off track or turns into an Abbott and Costello routine. Oh, also, before we get going, time for the advertisements. Time to pay the bills. If you're on a budget and are looking for an affordable online training course for AWS Certified Weld Inspector exam, visit train, T-R-A-I-N-E-N-G.com and check out the online course for Part A, General Knowledge, and we have a new one, Part B, for the hands-on inspection. If you like our podcast and you feel that this is worth something to you, throw us a buck or two. Go to TexasWeldingEngineering.com. We have a donation page. You can make a PayPal donation. Throw a couple of bucks in there and help keep the lights on and keep this high-production podcast flowing. Also, if you like this material, check out my YouTube channel. There's all kinds of videos on there explaining all kinds of stuff in regards to welding. Just Google my name, Gary Pace, welding engineer and welding youtube and there it should bring you right to the youtube channel anyways thanks for joining us now on to the episode stress relief heat treatment go over it real quick one is the uh temperatures are are limited and it, you mainly i have only done it in d11 for big parts that were going to get machined i think uh it was on a bascule bridge and we had i think it was like a eight inch thick base plate welded to like a 12 inch piece of plate and i want to say that was like the gear was going to be six feet tall and get uh, big teeth machined out of it and it had i don't think it was a full pen weld but i think it was i mean extremely healthy parcel joint i mean something probably like beveled like three or four inches on either side and they didn't want it to move while they were machining it. So after it was welded, the whole thing was uh, stress relieved. And you're, you're doing it more for dimensional changes, not really as much for microstructure changes. Like a lot of times in um, uh, some steels, you may do it to actually to really soften them. Here, you're, what you're trying to do is get out and release stresses. There, that's there, there, there's a lot of... If you do it following this cookbook uh, of what they have, you should be okay. There's a lot of steels that are not recommended for post-fill heat treat, uh, and those are like our 514s, 517s. 
all of our, our quenched and tempered steels. There, there, there's a laundry list of here of materials that you don't want to postal heat treat because you will destroy the microstructure that gives the steel its strength. Um, I think that's, uh, I think the best way to, uh, to address that. Yeah. And like I said, I've done stress relief on, you know, pressure vessel components and materials like that. But, you know, and most of it's just falling, like Pete said, you follow the recipe here and generally on structural components, you don't see too much stress relief. It's not like you're dealing with a, a 918, you know, high carbon steam line and some kind of ASME boiler and pressure vessel type situation or power piping or something like that. Generally, your structural steels, you're not going to go down that road. But if you do have to, they've got you, you some provisions here and some requirements and a recipe that you need to follow to get you where you need to go. Once again, before you dive into this, if you are a rookie and you get thrown to the wolves, just read. Do some reading, take an extra hour or two, put together what you're going to do, and, you know, generally things will come out. Um, you know, and it, Pete said here, steel's not recommended for post-weld heat treat. Stress relieving of weldments of ASTM A514, 517, A109, grades HPS 100W and ASTM A10 or 710 steels is not generally recommended. It's just telling you flat out, don't stress relieve this stuff. It's not going to come out good. You're going to soften that. the If you stress relieve that material, you're going to change the microstructure significantly enough in that weld material that it's not going to be anything close to what the base material started out as. It's going to turn to mush or something. So it's not going to give you the mechanical properties you're looking for. So that's don't why they give you a red flag there and say, don't do this. Do not do this. You know, and there's a whole preamble there telling you don't post-weld stress relieve this stuff. Just leave it alone. I think we beat that horse a couple times too many. So let's move on to backing. Steel backing shall conform to the following requirements. Fusion. Groove welds made with steel backing shall have the weld thoroughly fused to the backing. If you're going to use backing, you got to weld to it. You can't have it unfused. Full length backing. Anything else in here, Pete, that you think we need to cover with backing? Um, no, I mean, uh, I mean, the reason that uh, AWS has a whole lot of information here on backing is um, it's generally either you back, you use backing or you back gouge, uh, or unless you qualify an open route. So that's the reason why there's a lot of information here on it. Is um, there's a lot of joint designs that that have the backing in here. Um, they, they have some, uh, or they used to actually, I think, have some backing thicknesses that were minimums, uh, but I believe that's been taken out. Uh, and that was basically so you didn't blow through your backing. Low. So don't use like an eighth inch thick backing when you're sitting there subarcing at 500 amps because you'll blow right through. So you need to prevent melt through. And it's basically just like a weld, it's a weld quality uh, kind, of, kind of issue. Um, cyclically loaded, uh, things change. Uh, once things go from uh, static to cyclic, and a lot sometimes you may have to remove your backing as opposed to leaving it in place. Uh, that's because uh, on both sides of the root of where you tie into your backing, you have a a perfect notch uh, that is formed there, 
and that's why on cyclically loaded structures you may have to remove it and that that will that's subject to uh, what that should be on the drawings as specified by the engineer or in the specifications associated with the project right and it gives you a couple couple of examples there you know some wording on do this don't do that that you know you can read through and figure out on backing welds 510 welding and cutting equipment this is kind of this is an interesting one it's just a short one but all welding and thermal cutting equipment shall be so designed and manufactured and shall be in such condition as to enable designated personnel to follow procedures and attain the results described elsewhere in the code. So to me, this one is telling whoever's manufacturing it, you got to have equipment that works. You got to have grown up equipment. You can't just have old cobbled together welding equipment that, you know, that the, oh, how do we, how do you know this is 110 amps? Well, it's, it's on that notch right over there. We know you got to have, you got to, if you're going to swim in this pool, you got to play like grown ups. And that's what this is telling you. You know, if I come into a shop and I'm doing the CWI or third party inspection or, you know, the owner's engineer or whatever capacity, and I go in there and the cutting and welding equipment looks like, you know, something that you bought at a used bake sale. I didn't even say garage sale. I said bake sale. <laughs> you know, you bought it at the bake sale. Yeah. I'm probably going to throw up a red flag and be like, no, you, you need to rectify this situation. Your welders can't follow the, the WPS is there's no, you know, amperage, voltage, wire feed speed, none of that. How do I know that they're welding to my WPS is so thoughts? Pete? Correct. No, I think that that's generally it. I mean, it's kind of a, uh, a very simplistic catch all kind of, uh, kind of statement. Um, there, there is a lot of ambiguity to it and a lot of gray area. Um, I know a lot of places do, they have a little notch or a little mark or whatnot to say, Hey, that's 110 amps, and that's what we use for our, let's say, one-eighth rod or, or uh, something like that. But we know it's that way because here we use this meter over here to check it. Well, okay, hey, we've we've had a thought process and we've worked through it, um, but it's basically saying keep your equipment in good working order. Yeah, you're doing code-related work. Follow the rules. Welding environment. You want to go on with uh, maximum wind velocity, Pete? Yeah, five miles an hour. How fast is five miles an hour? That that has came up, unfortunately, more times than uh, than I care to think about it. Uh, and basically, if your smoke isn't coming straight up, pretty much, you need to look at doing something. I, I, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a problem, uh, where just not uh, mainly whenever you have, you're welding in the field and you don't want to erect any kind of walls or because of your time or you don't have them, you don't have a sheet of plywood or, uh, you can't build some kind of little hooch or welding shelter that that's where that comes into. And the argument has been on, well, how fast is five miles an hour? It's been dealt with many ways. But just build something that you can keep the wind off of your consumable so you don't blow your shielding gas away. All of those processes listed basically use gas. Uh, they don't use a flux. So that's where – or the flux square is in combination with gas. Um, so one of the common um, for flux cord arc welding gas, it would be like a trade name would be dual shield or something like that. 
Correct. Where you're using gas in a, you're using a gas with the flux cord um, filler material. When I worked in Iowa, this little hydraulic cylinder place that no longer exists, and it wasn't little, but we'd have problems with the gas metal arc welding in the spring of every year when they'd open up the, it started getting hot and humid in Iowa. So they'd open up the doors at the end of the building and it'd create this wind tunnel. Well, for the machining and everything else in there, it didn't matter. But for the gas metal arc welding and what little TIG welding we did, man, it would blow that shielding gas away. And we'd have all kinds of porosity issues for about three weeks before we finally got things, you know, rearranged and shielded and doors closed or, you know, rectified the situation. And this is meant for, you know, a lot of this is meant for if you're going to be welding in the middle of western north dakota you know up in the Bakken oil fields or whatever there's a lot of wind out there you're probably not going to be using gas metal arc or tig out in the middle of that stuff stick is probably a better option as is um, just straight up self-shielded flux core arc welding so correct minimum ambient temperatures welding shall not be done when the ambient temperature is lower than zero degrees f Minus 20C, that's generally a pretty good idea. When surfaces are wet or exposed to rain, snow, or high wind velocities, or when welding personnel are exposed to inclement conditions, means when the weather's really cruddy, you got to build something. You got to build a hooch. You got to build some kind of makeshift building structure to keep the water off or at least get your temperature that you're welding up above zero degrees Fahrenheit. Correct. I mean, so not, not only is it, we don't want to be making welds <laughs> while, while it's raining. It, it's not only just for a better weld quality, but it's also if, if, if you put people in inclement conditions, it's also harder for them to do quality work. So I, I would say that this is generally a twofold statement. Uh, one is quality of weld. The other one is being able to help put the welder, set them up for or her for success. That's the, uh, so I think there's, there's two parts to that one. Like Pete was saying, yeah, it's, you're, you're trying to set your people up for success. You don't want them out there knee deep in mud trying to weld or, you know, the frozen tundra of, Western North Dakota. I'm a Montana guy. I grew up there. So I always got to kind of get in a shot on Eastern Montana and Western North Dakota, how windy it is. So, but it's the, it's the truth. Not that Western Montana is some kind of tropical environment, but any of that, any of that tier of Northern States, North Dakota, Montana, Minnesota, or Canada, these are, these are going to come into play. You're probably not going to have to worry about zero degrees F in the Southeast states or Texas or, you know, situations like that geographically. No, but, uh, uh, I mean, I grew up in South Texas and, uh, I definitely know about having to weld on, uh, shrimp boats and stuff, uh, in, uh, very wet, uh, environments, um, and wind along the coast. So none of those were fun. No, no. And it's a different, you, you got a different, situation there which is covered in wet or exposed to rain or high wind velocity so you can get two or three of those all in one. off right there so That's definitely right. every there's a lot of 
you might not be dealing with the frozen cold, but there's the wet and the wind velocities that you've got to deal with. Conformance with design, 512, size and lengths of welds shall be no less than those specified by design requirements and the detailed drawings. Uh, location of welds shall not be changed without the approval of the engineer. It's telling you, you can't make this up and change things without the engineer signing off. So you got to follow the design. Correct. And the, the those tables that they mentioned do give you some a little bit of leeway. You got to look at the table, read the table, and 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 apply it. Minimum fillet weld sizes is five thirteen. Um, the minimum fillet weld size, except for fillet welds used to reinforce groove welds, shall be as shown in Table five point seven. The minimum fillet weld size shall apply in all cases unless the design drawing specify welds of a larger size. Make sure that you put in the minimum fillet weld size. Correct. Now, this this is one that um, should also be looked at from the reverse. So the code talks about a minimum fillet weld size, but you should also be wary of maximum fillet weld sizes, especially if you have things that move or something that gets put into an area and all of a sudden the fillet weld is too big for the part to now go in because of clearance issues uh, and also just cost of overwelding uh, and possible distortion as well. So the code has a minimum, but as a good fabricator, we should also probably look at having a, a good maximum size as well. 514, preparation of base metal. Now this is where you can get into all kinds of trouble. Um, to me, this is just common sense. I, I don't even know how to start. But well, obviously, they've put in, you know, a whole section here because obviously somebody out there in the universe wasn't cleaning things or preparing the base metal. So let's just, I'll just dive in. And this one has a has has a point of contention, and and uh, I, I know some folks have. Uh, have uh, really picked on uh, D11 for one of these. But but you're right. The first part, I mean, general, it just needs to be clean to make a weld that's the quality requirements. That's uh, a first real general, I would think, easy to understand kind of statement. Um, the, the next one is about mill-induced surface defects. Uh, a lot of materials made the uh, ASTM A6, and there are allowances for defects. Um, so this is talking about what, so if we have like a fin or a crayer, I mean, you can't, don't put the weld on base metals that have a problem. Uh, that's pretty easy to understand. I mean, what do you think, Gary? Is that, is there, there's nothing, is there anything complex about that one? No, that's is this comes down to, you know, educating your welders and then you as an inspector or an engineer or whatever your role in the food chain is, you know, you, you gotta be able to understand that you know fins tears cracks slag or other base metal defects you got to be able to recognize these and realize okay we can put in a beautiful weld but we're welding over substandard material or material that's got a defect in it we're not accomplishing anything you're, you're not you're not getting where you need to go so you need to understand that you know you shall not be placed on these surfaces it means don't do it if you're welding on crappy base metal don't stop figure out your path forward get a new piece of material or see if you can repair it what your situation is for a repair situation um, what your path forward is yeah so the the next one is talking about scalar rust 
okay, I'll be honest, I am a big proponent, proponent of you weld on shiny material, but that's not what the code says. You, so like loose scale or thick rust, it has to get removed. But when it's real thin, now this is all subjective about what is thick and what is thin, uh, can be allowed if it's thin and it can withstand the vigorous hand wire brushing. That's, uh, I mean, I can see uh, if you have a, I mean, the Hulk out there wire brushing is going to be a lot different than uh, a person that's probably 100 pounds. So, like I said, that's another subjective one. But it allows it unless you're dealing with cyclical loaded structures. And then it's for your flanged webs, all the mill scale has to be gone. And like I said, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of bright and shiny, set you up for success. The more stuff you weld over the more chances you have of a problem. I mean, I know a lot of fluxes are designed to handle some stuff, but the less it has to handle, the better off you are. What do you, what do you think about that one, Gary? Yeah, there's some situations where you might be able to get away with it and punch through it, but generally you want to have it, it's shiny material. You know, you don't, don't borrow trouble. I used to have a boss that said, don't borrow trouble. And to me, if you're, if you start welding, making a habit of run, welding over mill scales and rusts and material like that, you're just asking for trouble. You're borrowing trouble. So, you know, you're trying to set yourself up for success. And a little bit of grinding and um, preparation of the weld metal goes a long ways. And, you know, that ounce of prevention is a pound of cure type of thing. C- correct. I, I remember when I was first starting out as a welder and, and I was the the youngest one there, the least experienced one, the way we addressed that was give Pete a nine inch grinder and let him grind for a couple hours and everything uh, that, I mean, a nine inch grinder makes a lot of things disappear real fast. Put either a big disc or put a big cup rock on it and the weight of the grinder and you don't have to push down very hard will make a lot of all that disappear, bright, shiny metal. And you're right, you're not borrowing trouble. I like that, Gary. I'm a storehouse for these useless sayings. So, Okay, so 514.4, foreign materials. Okay, we talked about rust and mill scale. 514.4-1, surfaces to be welded and the surfaces adjacent to the weld shall be cleaned to remove excessive quantities of the following. Water, oil, grease, other hydrocarbon-based materials, Welding on surfaces containing residual amounts of foreign materials is permitted, provided the quality requirements of this code are met. So what this is telling you is we're dealing with carbon steel. We'd like you to get it as clean as possible, but you don't have to get it as clean as you would if you were welding a duplex stainless steel, a nickel alloy, or let's say a titanium type base metal where you can't have anything. There can be absolutely nothing on those base materials when you start to weld. Whereas this is saying, okay, we're welding with carbon steel. All right, we can we can punch through the oil or the grease or, you know, the cutting fluid. You know, wipe it off, get it as good as you can, but it doesn't have to be just absolutely um, surgical level of cleanliness that's what that's telling us get it as good as you can and make a good attempt at it and and also if you're if you're welding and all of a sudden you start to see a bunch of porosity in your weld 
as the last last sentence says, you have to meet the quality requirements. You stop and you figure out what's wrong. I wish Gary, I I would have would have known what conversation brought this into the code. I I don't know uh, what it is to provide some history on it. But what I could easily see is if someone was working on, let's say, a subarc tractor, and they got a can of WD-40 to squirt on a bolt, and someone cried that all of a sudden that spray drifted five feet and got on the weld area, and you can't even see it. I, I, I don't know. I'm just making up a story of how this section got into it. Uh, of where it's quantities that you can't even really see, kind of. That's the way I look at this. If you can't really see it, it's probably clean enough. Uh, if you've done a good scrubbing on it. Now, granted, if you have all your plate in the yard, you got or like an or in your shop, and you got an overhead crane that leaks oil on it, you need to get a degreaser to make that oil disappear. Don't just weld over it. I I do not think that's what the intent of this is. Uh, to give you free reign to weld over blobs of grease or or big oil stains, it's it's the you're right. It's not surgical clean. It's like hey, that looks reasonably clean. I don't see an oil sheet on it. I don't see standing water. It looks dry. That's what that is for. Unfortunately, it is subjective. We're human beings, and there are probably those that take it to the extreme of either. Welding over a pound of grease that just dropped out of the forklift to wanting everything wiped down with 10 acetone wipes with Q-tips. So we're grown-ups. Let's figure it out. You, you're going to have to use a, a judgment call there. And you're going to have to use your best grown-up judgment and professional judgment. And, because there's a lot of different cutting processes, you know, cutting fluids, you know, like you say, and we're big boy world like you say there could be hydraulic fluid and you wiped it off it doesn't have to be you know super clean to the that you can do surgery on it but you know you've got most of the cutting fluid wiped up or most of the hydraulic fluid from the leaky forklift or whatever you've got most of it wiped up it's there's probably some micro level of it there but yeah you can weld and with some of these processes, you're you're probably going to punch through it and burn it off anyways. I say that, and then somebody's going to come back on me. You said we could punch through. No, you're not going to punch through three inches of grease or catch something on fire. you got to use some common sense. Skill of the craft, I think, is what we used to call it at the Hanford site. Um, Sounds good. Welds are permitted to be made on surfaces with surface protective coatings or anti-spatter compounds, except those that are prohibited. Um, provided the quality requirements of this code are met. This covers anti-spatter compounds that you might use in when you're gas metal arc welding or using one of those processes, you know, so you don't want to have spatter on there. Another big one is uh, weld-through uh, primers. Uh, that's that's another one because if uh, a lot of times things may be pre-blasted and they put a, a weld-through primer on there, but to prevent flash rusting, etc. Uh, my, my biggest thing about this is make sure you're using products that are designed for it. Don't just use like any old paint and say, oh, we can weld through it. Uh, use products that are designed and tested for this application. They exist. They're not expensive. Um, and 
if you follow directions, if you goop on a whole ton of of, of either one of them, you're going to have problems. Just skill the craft, Gary. And when we definition skill of the craft, that means that the craftsman should have a basic set of knowledge is an accepted base knowledge for that craft as a welder or pipe fitter or iron worker that, you know, just common sense. I shouldn't have to tell you this every time that you have learned this. This is just a baseline set of knowledge. Um, five fourteen five mill induced discontinuities. So this uh, we we touched on this briefly uh, earlier on um, on on these. Basically, they can exist within. Uh, there's there's a level, and uh, this one it's table seven four. I think the older version is five four, and they can be repaired. And there, if they get to a certain size, you have to report them to the engineer. Uh, one one good way I've seen dealing with this um, was we're welding big uh, plates together for uh, for a web for a girder, and there were issues on one end. Well, it was just flipped around and welded to the other, and the good end was welded, and the other end became the drop. All of a sudden, we didn't have to worry about repairing anything. But there's provisions for how to repair uh, discontinuities. And that, that follows down in the paragraph right below the acceptance criteria where it goes through the size of the uh, defect, how you have to find it by, I mean, the, the applicable ASTM of inspection standard for straight beam UT. Then there's a lot of the percentages for how the material can either be for thickness, for length. And it's basically we need to read through each one of these whenever you have a repair. And I would document what these are to make sure that you fall within uh, the X, Y, Z dimensions uh, for for the indication for it. Then the next one, Gary, uh, which I'm assuming uh, the old one was uh, 514.52, the repairs. It talks about how to go through the repair of of it, joint preparation, material trimming. Yeah, and that's what's listed here is it just gets into the, you know, the repair. My thing, I, I don't know how deep you want to dive into this, but to me, the repair thing is it's a documentation thing. Follow the recipe and then have a systematic way of approaching repairs. I worked it in a situation where we had we had paperwork and what it wasn't we didn't do structural work we did pipe work and we did some small pressure vessels and tanks but what the there was a defined a well defined repair method and it was very methodical where you would you know the welding engineer was the person responsible for calling out the repair okay this the, the NDE found a repair in this area okay the welding engineer, which was me, would come up with the recipe. There would be like a little packet generated. Okay, you're going to grind out from this point to this point. You're going to do this, 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 and this. You're going to grind it flush, whatever. But there was a very detailed repair methodology that we followed. And to me, that's probably as important as what is written down here you know, you just can't go at repairs in, you know, a haphazard manner. You need to document it, that you did it right, you know, have your 
documentation that once you got the repair done that you passed NDE afterwards. It takes a little bit to get into it, but that's pretty much what I got to say on repair. Yeah, I, I would say I think you have a good assessment. Um, when uh, I used to do work for the state of Pennsylvania, they, they actually came up with a like pre-approved uh, ways of doing repairs that, that were common for base metals on heavy sections. And it was follow the recipe, document uh Document what it was, document what you did, document the end outcome. And that's basically what it comes out to um, for that. And I think uh, – I'm not sure if we need to go much more into it. In, unless someone had a really good uh, repair situation uh, that they wanted to send in that we could kind of talk about for mill-induced discontinuities. But I think that's uh, – I don't know if we need to beat that one anymore, Gary. No, I think we pretty much hit that one. So that gets us out of repairs. Okay, so joint preparation, this is how are we making our bevel. And it gives a laundry list of what you can do. I mean, grind it, chip it, gnaw on it. Uh, So it walks through all that, but except for oxygen gouging. And it says you can only use that on as-rolled steels. And the reason it gives you a laundry list of what you can do but then that one exception is because oxygen gouging is extremely hot, and that goes back to the changing of our microstructure. So that's, uh, I think, uh, I think that's all we need to really say about that one, Gary. Unless you got some uh, words of wisdom on that one. No, I don't have much on, you know, joint preparation. Like you say, the oxygen gouging is pretty much the one that's, that's the red flag. But most other processes may be used but that oxygen gouging throws up a big red flag and if there's some other you know process that you want to try you can use it but you just got to get the engineer to sign off on it if there's some super secret special you know way that you're going to bevel your plates and it's not listed here you know the engineer can sign off on it if there's something that's outside the rule book all right, and then the the next one, uh, which goes along with it, is uh, material trimming, and th- this is really only for cyclically loaded structures, um, and this is where you need to cut back uh, the material, and it gives a whole list of different ways that the material has been processed, and basically what the the whole goal of this is is to potentially remove micro cracks. Uh, that's, I mean, if the material's being sheared uh, and it's thick stuff, you could have micro-cracking there. Rolled edges of plates, you could have issues there. Um, so that's that's why it walks, it walks through different scenarios and the amount of material you have to remove to get in, quote, the, a safe zone where there's no, uh, there's no problems. What do we got up next? Uh, we got thermal cutting processes. Basically, that allows electric arc gouging, including plasma, uh, oxy fuel cutting. Uh, that, those are those are all allowed uh, in here. Yeah, so it gives you a whole different, um, a whole slew of different options. So you're not just stuck to one um, way to cut it. So exactly, um, and and along with what you said earlier, if you got some other super secret process, it can be approved or i mean maybe i mean another one that's uh i mean anything that you could come up with uh that's not in that laundry list can be uh, can be approved 
profile uh, accuracy that's basically making sure can you can you cut the the profile of whatever you're trying to cut out cut it straight cut a a, a shape that's um, that's all that that is uh, that that's done and the the reason in here for for sickly loaded structures freehand thermal cutting is it is only done with permission you it's more likely to produce notches with freehand cutting as to following a template or a straight edge or uh, like a machine cutting process it's all about the the notches that can then be a stress concentrator for a fatigue crack to grow in in the, in the freehand cutting uh, there's been multiple incidents where that has caused issues once again it gets back to what we've been preaching is as you get into cyclically and dynamically loaded structures there's just so many things that can go wrong things that might not be a issue when you're welding farm equipment or you know putting something together for your garage you start having the same defect or discontinuity on a something that's cyclically loaded or a dynamically loaded structure it can be a fatigue situation that it might not be an issue now but seven years down the road and 120 million cars going across that thing then you got a a, a, a different issue you got problems you got a defect that's going to take down a bridge or a structure yes um and and that basically plays in roughness requirements are also the smoother the the less likely of a of an issue uh and how we have gouge notch limitations uh that, that all need to be that all need to be met. Uh, that's why I know some some fabricators to to get around all of this, especially on uh, which the next subject that we we're going to go on to is reentrant quarters. They actually drill them, and that removes almost all of their issues. There's uh they're not they're not borrowing any problems uh, by doing that. It takes a little longer, but they use a big mag mag drill with uh, a slug cutter, and life is easy. They don't have to go and measure anything because a drilled hole is magnitudes smoother than anything cut by uh, one of these oxyacetylene uh, or oxyfuel uh, processes. Well, and I think what the code, too, is looking at is you might have the greatest cutter, and I mean oxyfuel man ever or person, and they might be able to do it. But if you get that apprentice or a guy that's been in a couple of years or and you go have him make a cut and it's not nearly as smooth. So that's why they, they pay so much attention to this cut surfaces and, you know, the roughness. And like Pete was saying, you go with a drilled hole or a mechanically cut out hole, you're going to have infinitely less problems. And it's going to be a lot smoother than even what the best welder can cut out by hand. Correct. Correct. All right. How about 516 weld access holes, beam copes, and connection material? Anything to add to that? Or is this one of those ones where we're just going to say read it and run with it? Well, a, a lot of what we've already discussed is basically what is covered in here. Uh, I mean, here it has some sizes. Uh, of, that you have to look at following. There's some requirements, especially for galvanizing it. What you have to do there, and that's all. That's all about having the right profile. But I think uh, I think we have basically uh, covered everything. Um, 
one thing just to, to be aware of when, when you're doing all this stuff in heavy sections and you do decide to go and use a, uh, a flame process, you have minimum preheating requirements. And a lot of these is grind uh, to bright metal. And you have to inspect the surface. And just so you're aware of, visual may not just be the best way to define these little, these little indications. Um, it's not written in the code, but going to uh, MagParticle, which is a cheap and easy way to, to also look for little indications that you might not see from the eye, uh, would be a, a good way to deal with, especially when you're dealing with real heavy sections and you choose to to flame cut as opposed to uh, drill or machine yeah and like you say um with pt and mt they're not super expensive non-destructive testing methods and they'll find a lot of surface indications that might lead to problems later on down the road all right 517 tack welds and construction aid welds General requirements. Okay, here we get in with tack welds. Tack welds and construction aid welds shall be made with a qualified or pre-qualified WPS and by qualified personnel. So your person that is doing the tack welding has to have qualifications. You need, if you qualify them as a welder, a full-on welder, they need to have paperwork. Or if you qualify them as a tack welder and went that provision, they need to have paperwork. You can't just grab a guy off the street or one of your laborers or something and say, okay, dude, you are now the tack welder. I need you to just start tacking this mess up. You need to have paperwork on them. Yep, that's exactly true, Gary. Um, One of the other things that really talks, this is where in cyclically loaded structures, there's requirements for the engineer to give guidance because the fabricator may or may not know where uh, some of these exclusion zones are or tension, re- tension reversals. Those really need to be on the drawing, and then that needs to be communicated also to the shop floor. One of uh, trips that f- was for a, uh, a mistake like this was we had some, some big girders that were at a field uh, site, and I want to say they were like – they were like 12 foot tall. They were big railroad girders. And someone took angle iron and just welded it right in the middle of the, or in, in the web to the ground so they wouldn't fall over. Well, the problem with that is they were made with no, no, no procedure at all. And they were just welded up. And then they basically just bent the angle backwards and forced to break it off. So we had to go and grind them smooth, perform mag particle testing to make sure that it was all good. So, Tax wall, it's just like, well, it's just a tack. Is a tack can be more than a tack, especially placed in the wrong spot. Yeah, and you can get into situations where, depending on the material, you just tacked it, but it was a quenched and tempered material. Maybe you've introduced some kind of stress concentration into that material. You don't, as the welder or the inspector, you don't maybe have the exact information of just how critical that particular location is on that beam or that girder then it might be you might have just introduced a catastrophic failure point to something you don't know that's why we got to try and follow the rules tack welds that are not incorporated in final welds and construction aid welds that are not removed shall meet the visual inspection requirements before a member is accepted tack welds you can't have cracks you can't have porosity you can't have a bunch of defects or 
you know, your tack welds, if they're going to be incorporated into the final weld, they need to, they need to be quality because you have a crack in a tack weld or you have porosity or some issue in a tack weld. It's you're going to chase that. That problem's going to go all the way through. It's just going to follow you all the way to the face of the weld. So you need to make sure that your tack welds are quality. Correct. And uh, there's a subset when we get into these uh, weld uh, tack welds that are incorporated in the final product is when you deal with subarc, you, you you get a pass on a couple items. And the the reason you get the pass is subarc has the ability to penetrate very deeply and it can consume or kind of chew up uh, what it runs over, including tack welds. But as you said, I mean, we can't have crack tacks. That's, that's not something. But what we can have when they're consumed by submerged arc welds is your, your preheat for single pass tech welds isn't really required, but they can't be really big. So you can't have them get over. It's about three eighths of an inch or where it changes the contour of the surface of the submerged arc weld. And this, you really only run the problems in smaller, uh, long, let's say like a flange to a web girder where you may have uh, tack welds that are a quarter of an inch in size, three sixteenths in size. And then you have a fillet weld going over them that's only a quarter of an inch. All of a sudden it's like, hey, why is like every three feet or five feet, all of a sudden there's a little ripple. We can't have that. So you would need to kind of knock them down with a grinder before uh, before going over them with a sub arc. There, there's a couple other ones. Uh, I mean, it's a, there, there's a list of them going through there. But what, what I'll also say about this is if if you're in the qualification kind of area, what what I have always tried to do was use the same tacking process during my qual as I want to use in production to do this. And I usually put a macro there so I can tell someone that if they ever say, hey, how do you know it's consumed? I have a little picture to show them that, hey, there was supposed to be a tack weld there and there's no difference uh, in the weld metal. That's just, uh, though that's associated with qualification and not fabrication, that's a little lesson learned I got there. Oh, and another one that we kind of glossed over but gets back to acting like a grown-up and doing this stuff correctly tack welds incorporated into final welds shall be made with electrodes meeting the requirements of the final welds these welds shall be cleaned prior to incorporation so if you're doing a weld and it's you know a 90 ksi material you can't be using 6010 and then incorporating those tack welds into your final weld or 7018 or whatever the material is it has to meet the final weld um, requirements, the requirements of the final weld. Good, so good point, Gary. This is something you need to take into consideration before you turn your tack welders loose. You can't do it, even though it's going to hold it for it. If you're going to remove it and it's not going to be incorporated, yeah, you've got a number of different options there. But if it's going to be incorporated into the final weld, you need to make sure that it meets the requirements of the final weld. How about 518 camber in built-up members? In camber and built-up members, this is where you're building, let's say, uh, I mean, the easy example is a plate girder is where it comes up. And you're going to have shrinkage. Uh, so what it's talking about is make sure you include that or try to include the, those kind of shrinkages 
before you cut to mature, you may need to cut it a little long or a little wider uh, to to handle to handle that. That's the the gist of uh, of that section right there. Thanks for listening. Hope this podcast was worth listening to. We're gonna have more content coming out. Also, if you want to shoot me an email, gpacex at gmail.com. Give me some ideas or maybe there's some questions that you'd like me and Pete or me and Joel to answer in regards to welding, welding codes, filler material, or any other material joining question that you might think we have a shot in hell of answering. Anyways, thanks for listening. Take care. Pace out.